Hi, this is Stephen Laddick. And I'm Kent McPhail. Welcome to What the M, the podcast about the mortgage default servicing industry. What the M is a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every other Friday. So, Steve, how are you doing today? Could not be any better. How about yourself, sir? I'm doing great. Both Steve and I just got back from the NBA in Orlando, and I was able to bring back some sort of uh, cold bug with me. So this is actually my first full day back at work. Lots of stuff stacking up. But, you know, the NBA was great this year and had a lot of quality time with a lot of great people. So anyway, on our show today, we're going to be interviewing a guest who got together with a couple of friends, started an entity, and grew it into a juggernaut in the mortgage and note buying industry. Our guest currently serves as the executive chairman of PPR Capital Management. His expertise is derived from over 35 years of residential and commercial real estate experience as a licensed realtor, real estate investor, and fundraiser. As the latter, he has raised over $250 million for both notes and commercial real estate. He received a bachelor's degree in management from Westchester University, Go Golden Rams. He is a frequent guest on shows related to real estate and investing in mortgages as well as raising capital. Our guest is a prolific writer and author who has been published in multiple industry publications and in June of last year was accepted into the Forbes Finance Council. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Dave Van Horn. Dave. Thank you, guys. We're glad to have you here. We truly appreciate it. So let me just jump right in and talk uh, about PPR Capital Management. I have had the pleasure of knowing you for a number of years now and just watched the fantastic growth of your company and what a success story it's been. Why don't you take us back to the origins of PPR and how you all started this business and how you got here today? Oh, wow. I mean, PPR was an accidental business, to be quite honest. We actually had started out as a short sale company and had a different name on the office. And we were doing the note bit mortgage business in the back room of a back office. And that took off and the short sale business went out of business, actually. (laughs) And, you know, we were buying delinquent junior liens in the beginning. And I like the idea of getting them reperforming, and it was uh, passive cash flow, you know, without tenants. You know, I came from the real estate world, so I had a lot of rental property. I had done property management and sales, that kind of investing. So I was investing in hard real estate. And what I liked about the note mortgage business was it was more passive, and it was like cash flow without tenants when you had performing loans, you know, cash flowing, paying every month. So we used to have an old saying, um, I'd rather have a mortgage payment than a rent check any day back in the old days. And it really started out in the very beginning was our own capital. I had a couple partners. It was our own capital in the beginning. And we kind of tested the model, make sure we knew how to you know, buy the assets, collect on the assets, that kind of thing. Now, this is pre-Dodd-Frank, by the way. <laughs> uh, this is back in 2007. And you know, things were good in the very beginning. And then we started using friends and family capital. And then later on, went out to raise more private equity. And one of the reasons my partner, John, had connected with me was I had been raising capital for commercial real estate prior to starting PPR. You know, he was more of an operations guy and he was like, I'll handle the asset management, the collections, the acquisitions. You go out and raise the capital. And that's kind of how it started. And then it took off from there. You know, the capital just kept compounding and the model kept working. And 
we morphed from junior liens, obviously, because there wasn't a lot of deal flow. As we grew, we needed more deal flow and obviously morphed into first mortgages. And now we do primarily first mortgages. We have a JV partner on the West Coast and we're in that, you know, three to 400 million a year, probably of what we do today in first liens. So it's grown significantly. So, Dave, uh, I appreciate you being on the show. In preparing for these shows, I always do some research on people and Westchester University. We have a connection there. My son-in-law actually got his master's degree from Westchester. And so and that's where I got the Golden Rams from. And I guess that's going to be a question for another day because I'm not exactly sure what a Golden Ram is. I'm a Southern Miss guy. I know what a Golden Eagle is. But anyway, so on this podcast, we talk about a lot of different economic issues with a lot of experts in the industry as it relates to the economy and how affects the industry. You guys are serious active participants in the secondary market buying notes. What are you seeing right now in this current environment and how do you feel like that's been affected by the pandemic and the current economic situation? Well, there's multiple things in that question that you're saying. I apologize. So, no, no, it's, it's great uh, conversation. Um, you know, what we were doing a year ago versus what we do today is dramatically different. Obviously, the market's significantly different. Pre-COVID, the real estate market was five, 10 year steady uptick in real estate. And note mortgage values are in direct correlation to real estate values, right? So for a long time, mortgage assets were pretty expensive because they were tied to, you know, mark, uh, real estate market. And the margins were kind of thin for the last five, 10 years. And what you saw during COVID was obviously a disruption. At first, when COVID first happened, we were like very concerned about our investor base. Are we going to have a run on the banks, so to speak? Well, our investors want their capital back. That those types of things. What we found was it was short-lived. It was very, we didn't really have that scenario happen. But the biggest impact was, you know, obviously we had to work remote and about a, a good portion of our company was working remote anyway, like a quarter to a third were already working remote. And the problem wasn't us working remote. It was the government working remote. And that was the impact. And what's astonishing even to this day to me, you know, there's over 3000 counties in the U.S., Half of those are still not online yet where I can do, you know, transactions online, which is just mind boggling infrastructure issue. You have to ask yourself, doesn't our country realize that the Internet's here to stay? <laughs> like we, we need to get online, guys. I'm still shocked that there's so many counties that aren't online. And that was probably almost an, as big an impact as the moratorium. And, and what we saw with COVID, the courthouse is closed. So not everywhere was across the board closing at the same time or all at once. It was very state or county specific. And you also saw weird variations of like, you know, the sheriff in, you know, I don't know, Monroe County decided to, you know, let foreclosures pile up or whatever. You're like, who are these people that they can just do those kinds of things? But the moratoriums were a, definitely a big impact. But the, you know, because obviously it was tying up our capital. And when you pay on the capital, it just wipes out your returns. I guess the, the biggest saving grace was real estate values continued to climb. The situation now is much different, though, with the interest rate uptick with the Fed coming in trying to control inflation, that had a big impact as well. And that's, you know, when you're going to try to buy assets today, it was a little bit of trying to catch a falling knife. And there were definitely a couple of quarters where we were pausing. We were definitely more in a defensive position in acquisitions intentionally. We were kind of waiting for the market to catch up with pricing because they're trying to market stuff at yesterday's prices. But obviously, you know, the cost of everything that's gone up and the interest rate hikes actually had a dramatic impact on that. So a lot of times our acquisition strategies have changed. Now, 
keep in mind, I'm more on the capital guy. I'm not an ops guy, but I'll give you a couple of scenarios of what I mean by things change. You know, I'll see my acquisitions team in recent months where they may do an acquisition and a lot of the acquisitions are opportunistic or they're taking down opportunistic trades sometimes that may have a little more hair on them because they can have more yield on those. Or there are situations where they'll take down a trade and they'll do a carve out and they'll sell that off. And the reason they do that, it's like they'll make a sort of like a quick nickel instead of a slow dime and they can de-risk things. So everything is in a short term mind frame right now. We do a lot of commercial loans, too. So we do a lot of commercial loan investing because they are short term. On the resi side, we'll do a lot of fix and flip hard money loans. Uh, we actually have a, a, a company we own 20% of that we're the facility for them. So we give them the capital to lend out. They originate these types of loans in 45 states. And then we have first right of refusal to buy those loans. And what that does is it gives us a vehicle to deploy capital in why we can wait for the market to change or we can make the next trade or next commercial real estate acquisition, basically eliminate our cash drag and things like that. And then we have lines of credit where we can recapitalize quickly. We can put those types of loans on our line of credit. We can also sell them on the secondary market. We do have access to a trade desk through our JV partner on the West Coast. So it gives us a lot of flexibility there for acquisitions or sales, those types of things. And then we also have the ability to put those loans into a securitization if we needed to, if we had one going on at the time. So there's a lot of liquidity there, a lot of short-term, I don't want to say strategy or thinking based on the market condition. In terms of what you were saying in regard to the local courthouses and records, I have a multi-state practice, as does my co-host, Stephen Laddick. And I tell you, sometimes it feels like we're literally trying to drag the court systems kicking and screaming into the 90s, not not to the, you know, the 2020s. But but anyway, I, I apologize for the interruption. Um, Steve, did you want to jump in on that sure, question? Yeah, yeah. Your, your point on the technology, I mean, I'm absolutely in your corner on that. When you look at the state of Pennsylvania, we have 67 counties, and basically only about a dozen have electronic filing at this point. That is 12 out of 67. So there's 56 counties where we're still mailing everything into to get it filed. To shift gears, you were talking a little bit about the impact the pandemic had. I wanted to ask you about that and see some of the impact on the uh, loan level economic issues. From its inception, PPR was always very active in trying to keep loans performing. How has that approach uh, towards working out loans benefited PPR in the long run? We definitely favor, call it exiting through the borrower or exiting through the property. We definitely prefer to exit through the borrower if possible, right? So exiting through the property is always a last resort for us. And we'll, we basically bend over backwards to try to keep people in their homes if there's a solution that can be made. I think that's one thing that's unique about PPR. So it was a different mindset, right? It was you know, really bending over backwards, working with homeowners, trying to keep them in their homes, doing modifications and various things. Now, there are some scenarios where obviously we can still help people move on or help them in other ways where it, it does become an affordability issue in some cases. But but that being said, you know, even with our JV partners on the West Coast, the one reason we JV with the, with those fellows is because they had a similar philosophy with the homeowner. So we are big on that, trying to have favorable community impact as opposed to some kind of a shop that's all about getting their hands on properties or something. For us, the, that was always a worst case scenario for us. As a quick aside, we were chatting before we started recording. Tell tell the audience in your very first buy how many loans you bought 
and how many loans you manage today. So from your first buy X number of years ago to today, tell us about that growth of PPR. Well, it was four loans in the very beginning. They were four junior liens. And I remember uh, two of them were disasters, basically. And one was a grand slam and one was, you know, like a home run or double or whatever. And if it wasn't for the other two loans that performed well, we probably wouldn't be here today, obviously. Um, But nowadays, you know, we're several thousand. We're probably around 3,000 loans, you know, a year. I think we've done over 2,800 this year. Now it's grown exponentially in recent years as we what one of the things that changed for us dramatically when we shifted from junior liens to first mortgages is we were able to get leverage institutional leverage that has been a game changer in the last few years where uh, a lot of our private equities married with some institutional capital to go out and make larger purchases the one unique skill that we have is the ability to raise a lot of private equity quickly and what that does is gives us an edge over some of the competition because, you know, if the institutions changed from you know being in an 80-20 scenario and leveraged, maybe they're 70-30, we're like, okay, we'll just go raise the extra equity. We have that ability because of the type of capital that we raise. Uh, we're not tied to the institutions on in that regard. Let me ask you a question. So our podcast is very much driven towards the mortgage default servicing industry, and we try to approach it from a lot of different angles. As a large-scale purchaser of notes, what do you guys look for at your entity as it relates to servicers? If you were giving advice to other note buyers, what do you look for when you're placing your loans with a mortgage servicer? Well, that's a loaded question. Um, Yes, it is. I'm sorry. So to give you a little bit of color, we have at least four servicers that I know of that we work with. So you might ask yourself, why four? from a former CEO position, the biggest challenge I saw with servicing was they don't have the same goals as the owners of the assets, right? And it, and here's why. Our goal is to get assets in and out it, through the process, through servicing, right? From start to finish to exit or whatever. Uh, the servicer's goal is to keep your asset in servicing forever if they can, right? I don't think there's any great love for servicers from the owners of assets across the board. I would tend to think. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have relationships with some over others. And then there's some product lines that work better with uh, some servicers than others. Like we do a lot of uh, HECM loans, uh, reverse mortgages that we acquire from government agencies. Well, there's only a handful of servicers that can even manage those assets. Just like if you had adjustable rate junior liens, not everybody can manage those the same, in my view. So there's different advantages and disadvantages from various servicers. And then they also have different fee structures. Uh, And then you can also have different arrangements. I know our JV partner on the West Coast is very close knit with their servicer who is in very close proximity to their location. And there's a lot more intensive oversight. And there's, you know, just a different arrangement. And a lot of it's because of volume as well, right? So if I have a lot of volume with a particular servicer, Obviously, I'll get more attention than if I had, you know, a small amount of loans with someone. So there's a whole litany of different things that go into that in my mind. It Uh, sounds like you're looking at the product you have. Does it take some specialized skill sets, i.e. the Heckams or the reverses? And so it's not a one size fits all, depending on what you're bundling and what you're trying to get serviced. Correct. 
Gotcha. Let's shift gears a little bit, Dave, and talk a little bit about uh, governmental regulatory bodies and how they're flexing their muscles these days and their increasing regulation and enforcement. Do you see things such as moratoriums becoming a new norm? And how does that affect PPR's approach to the market? You know, that's a good question. We were um, seeing more of the moratoriums being lifted. And, you know, after Dodd-Frank, the regulatory environment got so strict. The one thing I noticed is a lot of competitors left the business. But I don't know how much more strict they can get, right? They've already, (laughs) I mean, you can never say never. I'm sure they can. But I think for us, it's really just having a compliant asset management division and a compliant uh, servicer. I mean, that's the first line of defense in my mind is to make sure, you know, you have and to uh, periodically do those audits on those folks as well. Right. I mean, that's a big part of you know, auditing the servicers and auditing, auditing the other stakeholders that work with us with these assets. But you're right. The risk is definitely higher in this vertical for us than, say, the other verticals that we invest in. So, as I said in the introduction, you were recently inducted into the Forbes Finance Council. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about what what that's about? Uh, Yes. Well, Forbes has a council for, you know, CEOs. And uh, one of the reasons I joined the council was to continue my writing. uh, And they have some of my writing seen in a higher level. You know, uh, if you listen to our podcast, Dave, which I'm sure you will going forward, you'll always see that we always get around to the sports question. So it's the uh, start of spring training. You are from the Philadelphia area. So what are your predictions for the Phillies this year? Well, you know, the Phillies should have a good team this year, right? They, In my view, they went farther than expected last year. I think that's a space assessment. But they have a good core I guess it'll come down to how they handle the free agency. They have uh, they have the money, so now it's uh, can they deepen the bullpen and keep it together? But they they could theoretically have a better team this year than they did last year. So they should go to the playoffs with the type of caliber that they have and could have and the money they have. So they have all the ingredients now. Will the will the cooks be able to make the stew and get us to the playoffs and uh, hopefully take it all the way, right? We shall see. We shall see. We hope you can make it to a game with us this summer. Uh, one thing I meant to ask you about PPR, you guys had a very major announcement recently uh, regarding your position and regarding the CEO. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that update from uh, PPR? You know, we have a new CEO now and um, there's been a change of roles, but it's something that we started doing uh, a couple of years ago was succession planning uh, for me and my partners. It's hard to do a a good job wearing multiple hats, trying to do multiple things. And as the company grew, it became harder and harder. So I am still on as executive chairman of our board, and I still assist the company in capital raising. We brought in a gentleman, uh, Steve Meyer from SEI. Uh, SEI is a pretty big uh, publicly traded company. He had worked there 29 years, and they had $1.3 trillion of assets under management. So a very big shop. Uh, they were at in the you know three to four thousand employees. We only have thirty, so <laughs> that it's significantly different. But uh, I think Steve's a great addition to us, and I you know he was there to help grow SEI. I think when he started there, there was only like 150 employees, something like that. So he's a guy that'll scale a business, and I think I think it's going to be interesting to see PPR uh, really start to scale at this point. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
So, Dave, this brings me to my favorite question of our podcast each week, which is uh, we ask all our guests, and, and I'm always fascinated by the responses. If you had the opportunity to go back, you know, time machine, go back and sit down with the 20-year-old version of Dave Van Horn, what advice would you give that young man? Wow. <laughs> I guess it depends in what way, right? I guess I guess the biggest thing that I've learned in recent years is, and a lot of it's through coaching and mentoring that I've had, is you know focusing on what you do best and also leverage. So I I was in a a, a big CEO group called Birthing of Giants out of New York, and my one coach Lewis Schiff would always ask us, you know, what's the one thing you're going to leverage? in the next six to 12 months that's going to catapult the business. And he didn't say five things or 25 things. He said, what's the one thing? So the one thing that's interesting about that question is, uh, you know, what would I do over again? And I know for me, I guess the biggest thing is focusing on what I'm best at or focusing what the business is best at. And the second piece would be what one thing can you leverage? So I had some coaching and mentoring, and, and that was a question that they would always ask me is, you know, what's the one thing that you can leverage that will catapult the business uh, in the next six to 12 months? Now, you could also say that about your personal life, too. What's the one thing that will catapult me personally in the next six to 12 months? But this mentor of mine would ask me that same question every couple of months, and the answers would change based on where you were with your business or where you were with your personal life. You know, sometimes you're le- trying to leverage technology, could be new hires, could be education, could be capital, could be a JV partner, right? There's all different things we can leverage that'll help catapult our businesses. So I think, uh, I didn't know that at age 20, you know, I was definitely much older before I shifted my focus and even PPR in the beginning, we tried to be good at a lot of things instead of focusing on what we were best at. And it just took a while to figure that out. So I'll tell you that we have a law firm retreat this weekend, uh, our management group, and that's going to be definitely on the agenda. So thank you for the advice and question and mentoring. Hey, Dave, I just want to let you know we really appreciate you being here today, appreciate uh you know, everything you've got to say is very interesting and very accomplished. You mentioned you're a writer. I would say you're a prolific writer. When I started researching for the show today, you know, you've got lots of articles out there. I know you've got an audio book as well. And so I don't know how you find time to do what you do and that, but it's very impressive. And again, we appreciate that you're here today, Steve. Yeah, Dave, big, big, big thank you. We truly appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure to work with your company and watch your fantastic growth and uh, just best wishes for uh, much more continued success in the future. No, it was my pleasure, guys. I, I really appreciate you having me on as well. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, sir. If you like what you hear on our podcast and want to hear some more, please rate, review, and subscribe to What The M on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to visit with us on social media, we can be found at What The M Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.